Zechariah 11, 12 to 14, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There is a sound of the shepherd's wail, for their glory is ruined. There is a sound of the young lion's roar, for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says the Lord my God, Pasture the flock, doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I shall no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I shall cause the men to fall into one another's power and into the power of his king. And they will strike the land, and I shall not deliver them from their power. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one called favor and the other called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And I took my staff, favor, and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out thirty shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut my second staff, Union, in pieces to break the brotherhood, between Judah and Israel. In the first part of the chapter, 1 to 3, the prophet is predicting the downfall of the temple and the city and the kingdom in verses 1 to 3. In verses 4 and following, the reason for it. The reason for it is because they have foolish, unwise, selfish shepherds ruling over the people. That's in verses 4 to 14. They have foolish, unwise, ungodly, wicked shepherds, both in civil government and religious government over the people, and even the religious prophets. The prophets who are false prophets are misleading the people. This we found in the early passage in verses 4 to 6, and then in 7 to 11. And yet, among the people, the flock as a whole, the whole nation is a flock, but among the whole nation, there is the afflicted of the flock who are equivalent to the remnant of the flock. The remnant of the flock is God's concern. The rest of the flock, they are the ones who are annihilated. They are the ones who are who were weary of God, including the leadership. These are the ones who die, who are a are also eating one another's flesh, verses 8 and 9. Well, then 
we come to verses 12 to 14. Here we have our attention drawn to one individual, one betrayer in mind, which is the focal point. One betrayer in mind who is in conspiracy or in cahoots with others in the leadership to betray Christ. That's in verses 12 to 14. We have the betrayal of Christ for 30 shekels of silver. This is the prophecy that is recounted or fulfilled in Matthew chapters 26 and 27. Zechariah 11, 12 to 14 is predicting the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. That's what we have here in 11, 12 to 14. Now, since we believe in apostolic interpretation, let's pause here before we elaborate on this passage. Let's pause here and go to Matthew chapter 26, 26, 14. We'll read 26, 14 to 16. Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver, or thirty shekels of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Judas agrees with the leadership, the chief priests, who are the Sadducees, to agree to, for payment, 30 pieces of silver, to look for a good opportunity to betray Christ so that when they come, they come to arrest him, there is no escape for Christ because he will be arrested by the mob of the leadership. Okay, then chapter 27. 27 verses 1 to 10. Matthew 27, 1. Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him up to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. All right, now in Matthew 27, the fulfillment, we know in verses 1 to 2, Christ is delivered up to Pilate. After he's delivered up, 
Judas, he feels remorse, and he returns in verse 3, the 30 pieces or shekels of silver to the chief priests and elders. He bargained with them and gained some money, and then he regrets it, and in false repentance, he's going to return the money, but he's not going to fully repent. In fact, we know he's not repenting, because though he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, verse 4, and then they, they want nothing to do with innocent blood, so they say, see to that yourself. They want nothing to do to, uh, with that, so see to that yourself. So he does see through it. He see to it himself, verse 5, and he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. Presumably, he's near them and they are near the sanctuary in the temple. And since he wanted nothing to do with the money anymore, and the priests were not taking it from him, he threw it into the temple, into the sanctuary, and then departed. He walked away and went away and hanged himself. This is the false repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 teaches there's a difference between true and false repentance. And this is false because he went away and hanged himself. If he was truly repenting, he would not have hanged himself. 2 Corinthians 7, we read verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Judas had the sorrow of the world, therefore he went away and hanged himself. We pick it up at verse 6, 27, 6. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. They have scruples about this, but they are hypocrites because they probably got the money from the temple treasury and now they say they can't give it back and use it for the temple since it's the price of blood and it's innocent blood and they want nothing to do with innocent blood. Now they are worried about it. So what did they do, verse 7? They counseled together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. It may be that the potter's field was near the temple. We notice that Jeremiah being a priest and prophet in Jeremiah 18 God sends him to the field or to a potter's house, and it may be that that potter's house was near the temple, since he would make objects that would be used in the temple. Perhaps that's the reason why it's a potter's field and near the temple, as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. It was known as such in the days of Matthew in the first century after this incident because even though it's a field of burial, a cemetery, they called it a field of blood because it's the innocent blood, the price of blood that was used to buy it. Also, there are some people who think that the 30 shekels of silver is such a small amount, which is true. According to Exodus 
Exodus 21 and verse 32, it was the price of a slave. Exodus 21, 32 says, If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And in that way, they gave a meager amount to Judas. So Judas was such a lover of money, and he used to pilfer what was put in the money box, John twelve six. But he was such a lover of money, even that small amount they gave him was enough to convince him. Others have wondered why a small amount could buy a field, but we don't know what the cost of living was then, and we don't know how big of a field it was. It might have been just a small field for a small amount of money. It doesn't tell us, and we don't know how large it was. Then, verse 9, Matthew 27, 9. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, Here we have a conundrum. We're studying the prophecy of Zacharias, Zechariah, not Jeremiah. But why does Matthew say Jeremiah? He probably says Jeremiah because it was the case sometimes that when quoting from the Old Testament, they would make reference to the first book in the section. The first book in the section. And there were manuscripts where the prophet Jeremiah was the first of the prophets, not Isaiah, but Jeremiah. Isaiah was the third one. It would be Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Isaiah, like that. Or Jer- but Jeremiah was, in some cases, the first of them. Why so? Perhaps because his volume is the largest. Even though Isaiah has 66 chapters and Jeremiah has 52 chapters, Jeremiah's chapters, a lot of them are quite lengthy. And his words are more than Isaiah's. And if you think about the way that the Bible is compiled, the canon is compiled, this is similar to what we find in Romans to Jude. From Romans to Jude, we have the longest to the shortest. From Romans to Jude. And this may be one of the ways in which they canonized the prophets from the longest to the shortest. Um, Now that doesn't apply strictly, but it did apply to some manuscripts and to certain sections of the Bible. That line of thinking did apply. So when he says Jeremiah the prophet, If Jeremiah is the first of the prophets, sometimes when we say the prophets, we mean Isaiah to Malachi. And so there was a custom among the Jews to just refer to the first book of all the books whenever citing from that section of books. Do we understand? Here's another example. Keep your place here and turn to the book of Luke. Luke 24. Luke 
24. 24, 44. 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In one categorization of the Old Testament, it would be in three parts. The law of Moses, then the prophets, and the prophets would start with Joshua, Joshua, and end in Malachi without without Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and without Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Daniel. Without those books and the book of Chronicles, the two books of Chronicles. These and a couple more, they were placed in a third section of the Old Testament. And in that third section, the first book of that third section was the book of Psalms. And here Jesus in Luke twenty four forty four, when he says the Psalms, he doesn't mean only the Psalms, but he's referring to the first and longest book of that third section. The Psalms. You see? Because there are prophecies of him which are in the book of Ruth or the book of Lamentations or the book of Daniel. Even in Ezra and Nehemiah, they are preparing for his coming and the chronology of the Old Testament, some of it is confirmed by what is written in Ezra and Nehemiah for the expectation of the coming Christ. The chronology is based on certain incidents in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, he, Jesus is not saying, I'm only quoting or only going to refer to the Psalms, but referring to the Psalms as the first and um, major longest book in the third section. Now, if that's the case in Luke 24, 44, then that could be the, well the case in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 9. Okay, having said that, outside of the Bible, outside of the Bible, whenever there are ancient critics, and there are a couple of very knowledgeable ancient critics, skeptics, of Jesus of Nazareth being the Christ. There is one certain rabbi who rails against Matthew, rails against Matthew, saying that though he thinks Zechariah 11 is messianic, Christological, Matthew has completely messed up and distorted what Zechariah meant. Zechariah means something else. Now, having been merciless against Matthew in his commentary, he doesn't find fault with Matthew in verse 9 for saying through Jeremiah the prophet. He's meticulous in his critique, but he doesn't find fault with Matthew saying Jeremiah the prophet. 
saying, well, it's in Zechariah. Ma- Matthew doesn't know what he's talking about. Because he knows the convention, he knows of the custom, the way of citing the Old Testament, that Matthew is also familiar with it, and Matthew happened to use it here. Okay? Same page on that. We understand what's happening. Okay, then in verses 9 and 10, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. This, the, the sons of Israel here refers back to the chief priests and the elders. When he struck a bargain with them in chapter 26, 14 to 16, they are the sons of Israel who set the price and said, okay, this is how much we'll give you. And then verse 10, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. They gave them. The sons of Israel, the leadership, gave the pieces of silver to pay for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now back to Zechariah. Zechariah eleven twelve. Keeping in mind messianic interpretation by the apostles as being correct, accurate, trustworthy, we go back to Zechariah eleven twelve. Eleven twelve. And I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. Well, who is speaking? And who was saying to them? Earlier in this passage, verses 4 and following, the I, the I is Christ. Because the Father starts his dialogue with Christ in verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God, Pastor the flock doomed to slaughter. If that's the Father to the Son, And if we carry on this, then the son is saying how he's responding to the father. So verse 12, And I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. Okay, now at this point, and in verses 12 to 14, we must keep in mind the the sovereignty of God. If we understand the sovereignty of God that this is happening according to God's will, then we can make sense of this narrative and this dialogue. But if we don't keep in mind the sovereignty of God, this will be confusing. So in the sovereignty of God, it says, and I said to them, and who is the I? Let's say the I is Christ. Christ said to them, Who are the them? Are the them the ones made mention of in verse 11 or the ones at the end of 10? The ones in verse 11 are faithful. The ones in verse 10 are unfaithful. And in verses 12 to 14, we're dealing with the unfaithful. So we'll take them to be a reference to all the peoples of verse 10. 
and all the peoples corresponds to Acts 4.27, the book of Acts 4.27, where it says the peoples, plural of Israel. Are we following along? So I said to them, the peoples of Israel, all the peoples, said what to them, to the unfaithful ones? If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. There are some interpreters who think that the me is unnecessary. Whether we keep it there or not, in our Bibles it's italicized, which means these words are supplied, or this word is supplied. Give me is supplied. If it is good in your sight, Okay, first, if it is pleasing to you, if it is agreeable to you, give my wages. If we keep the me out of it, give my wages, then the indirect object or the direct object, actually it would be indirect. The direct object would be my wages. The indirect object would be the person who receives the wages. If we were to rephrase it, we would say, give my wages to me. My wages would be the direct object, to me would be the indirect object. But it doesn't say me. So it may be that they are called my wages, but they're not given to me because I don't get any of it. Who gets it? It refers to me, Christ, but... It's given to Judas. So we might say, if we're going to clarify, give my wages to him. To him. But if not, never mind. Now why would it say, but if not, never mind? Who can do this but one who is acting according to his own will, his own conscience, right? They can make a choice and consider something good, But if not, never mind. Though the sovereignty of God is here, we also have the responsibility of man. That they are happily and willingly seeing what's good in their own sight and doing it. Though the option is there for them not to do it. In terms of human responsibility, the option is there for them not to do it. Yet they do it. Because of verse 12, which says, So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Or the word wage can also mean my price. Um, Don't think wage means something that is necessary, that for which we labor. The word wage could mean my price. How much was I valued to you? Okay? Not talking about daily work or week's work or month's work, but in terms of price or value. That may also help to clarify what's happening here. Give my value or give my price to him. And so they do. They weigh it out and they give it to him. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. Now, I was valued, the Lord, 
we know that is the Lord speaking. And then by them, the same people mentioned in verse 10 and in verse 12, them. 10 and 12, them. They were the ones who valued or set a value, a low value, a low monetary value on Christ. Okay? That's them. But then it says, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. Throw it to the potter. Why to the potter? Because the potter's field, the potter's business, his shop is near the sanctuary. So give it to him, throw it to him. And if you give it to him, then you can buy from him the field. That's the point. And then he calls it that magnificent price. This is said sarcastically. It's not said straightforwardly, but it's said sarcastically. This is irony. 30 pieces is not much. Remember, we just saw in Exodus 21:32, that's the cost of a slave. In the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37, Joseph, when he was sold as a slave, he was sold for 20 shekels. He was sold for 20. But then here it says 30. Not a high value, but in irony or in sarcasm, it's called the magnificent price. But it's not. It's a cheap price at which I was valued by them. Verse 13. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter, in the house of the Lord. Now who is the me? In verse 13. The me has to be Judas. God is directing Judas sovereignly. Not explicitly and and verbally, but sovereignly. And then Judas takes the 30 shekels of silver and he throws them to the potter in the house of the Lord. To the potter likely means it's going to eventually be used to buy the potter's field. Okay, now back to verse 14. We have Christ. Then I cut my second staff union in pieces to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Since this betrayal took place and the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, all of this took place, it was time now to punish them. It was time to punish them for all the evils that they did. And so a part of the punishment in 14 is to break the staff called union. Remember, we first met union in verse 7, because there are two of them, one called favor and the other called union. Whatever union, whatever harmony, whatever peace existed between Judah and Israel, between Judah and Israel, 
now it's going to be broken. The brotherhood is now broken. And in this way, when the Romans came to invade Judea and Jerusalem and destroy the temple, whatever commonality, whatever brotherhood, whatever peace and harmony the tribes and the peoples had with each other, whether Judah, the southern kingdom, Israel, the northern kingdom, or the tribes and the clans and the families, there was, there was great confusion and chaos that ensued at that time. And it became, from that time onward, very difficult for Jews to know their heritage in terms of which tribe became difficult for them to know. So that even now, if we were to ask the Jew, you're looking for Messiah, you're looking for Christ to come, but how will you know he is the right one? Because you cannot trace your lineage anymore. Because here, God, or Christ specifically, broke the union of brotherhood between Judah and Israel. He caused all of this chaos and confusion as punishment for betraying him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.